Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, nuclear madness at home and abroad. The Russians light the fuse for World War III, maybe? What the hell is going on in the Ukraine? Also, we continue our coverage of the UFW pilgrimage from Delano to Sacramento for basic worker and human rights. We'll speak to the secretary treasurer of the UFW and a local official supporting the pilgrimage. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We come to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. And we come to you from the San Francisco Bay Area. Happy to have you along today. And today we continue uh, our uh, coverage of the multi-day, I should say, three-week pilgrimage by the United Farm Workers that's now taking place, uh, happening between Delano and Sacramento. Really, it's a march for basic worker rights. And you would think after all these years, after all these decades of struggle, that people would understand who the farm workers are, what they do, why they're important, why they deserve the rights of other workers, and uh, what it would mean not to have their work. Uh, And uh, so we continue to cover uh, this pilgrimage, and we are really uh, delighted to welcome to these airwaves Armando Elenas. He is now the treasurer of the United uh, Farm Workers, the secretary treasurer of the United Farm Workers. He's on that trek. Uh, And uh, Armando, it is really good to have you on uh, here uh, to talk about uh, what's up. Why don't you say hello to our audience and could you maybe share with them what might be at the heart of the matter? What's the driving force? Why are you out there? What does the struggle mean to you? Well, first of all, yeah, thank you so much for having me on the program. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, this is uh, day six for us. We just finished day six. It's uh, stopping here in Visalia, California. Um, and tomorrow we're going to continue on from Visalia uh, at 7 in the morning. We'll start uh, towards uh, Cutler Orosi, another farm worker town in the San Joaquin Valley. And, um, I mean, it's honestly, I guess you would say it's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a shame that we have to do this to to try to get uh, to get the governor to understand that farm workers need more rights in terms of, uh, being able to improve their working conditions and their and their benefits and and just basic respect uh, and so we're uh, we've been asking for the process where workers vote to have union representation to be easier so that they can vote uh, from the from the freedom and the privacy of their own homes if they so wish. Uh, which you know we all do as you know for example we vote by mail uh you know we can go and pick up the ballot at at the voter registrar or we can we can get in the mail we can and we can turn it in ourselves we can mail it mail it in or we can have somebody else turn it in uh you know so you know just trying to give these farm workers um that basic right to be able to do so and avoid the intimidation the harassment the threats 
that go on uh, at the job site uh, whenever workers try to organize. And, I mean, it really is extraordinary. You know, as we, I don't have to tell you, it's pretty hot out there. It's been over 100, sometimes 110, 115. uh, And I hear from the people who are on the march, it's quite uh, a struggle. But these, uh, what's being represented here is workers, these are workers who do this every day, spend 8, 10, 12, 14 hours. Workers who risk their life, uh, forced to work in unbelievable conditions that also include pandemics and raging fires. Uh, and it, it, it does seem like the governor would be sympathetic, uh, to this. Does it shock you that he has seemed so far uh, to turn a cold shoulder? Uh, What would you want to tell him if you're sitting eye to eye, looking him in the eye and saying, hey, I mean, I think it does does shock me, Uh, obviously. And as you mentioned, yeah, workers are working daily on temperatures uh, well over 100 sometimes. Um, especially in the Coachella Valley and the San Joaquin Valley, uh, where temperatures are sometimes reaching 110, 115. Um, and so, yeah, we're marching in, 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 in 100 degree weather. Uh, and, you know, uh, and so, and I think what I would say to the governor, to the governor is like, you know, hey, you sat down before you were elected with farm workers and you, and you committed you committed that you were going to support uh, farm workers' voting rights. That you would uh, that you would support uh, expanding and give and making it easier for them to uh, to vote. And and now, uh, you know, and, and now uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem or appear that uh, I guess those words were sincere. Uh, and so, you know, we want. Uh, workers to have that that uh, that right to be able to vote in the privacy of their homes, uh, to be able to uh, do something. Is but what people don't understand is that you know most of the time, if you know a worker, especially a farm worker, you know uh, uh, most of them, most of them, most are undocumented, and so there's a lot of fear in terms of being able to say something and in terms of being able to do something uh, for fear of reprisals, uh, for fear that, you know, that they're not, they're going to be out of a job and, you know, they don't have that safety net. You know, it's like we, and like you mentioned, you know, when these workers were deemed essential workers, but they're, they're treated anything but, all right. Uh, and they were deemed essential. And so therefore they had to continue working uh, and, and some of them really have no choice because if they stop working, they have no, they have no income whatsoever. They can't collect unemployment insurance. They can't, uh, you know, they just don't have anything else uh, to fall back on. You know, even though, you know, I know for a lot of workers that, you know, weren't able to work, you know, they had something and it's not enough. But, you know, it was something at least versus a farm worker who doesn't have anything. That's uh, that's incredibly troubling. Um, we are uh, really honored to be speaking with the Secretary Treasurer of the United Farm Workers. Uh, he's a part of this pilgrimage, we're calling it, uh, that is going uh, 
uh, to that began in Delano and will end in Sacramento uh, and is meant to pressure the governor into taking actions he's failed uh, to take in the past. Now, um, it is it's obvious. Uh, and it's, you know, national knowledge that Dolores Huerta has been a fierce supporter of the Democratic Party. She was given the Presidential Medal by Barack Obama uh, for her uh, life's work. Uh, again, she's a strong grassroots Democrat. But uh, it was, and, and also it would seem that the uh, the Democrats are very interested in you know, making sure they're they're getting support, or they got a tough election, elections ahead of them. But, but, but what do, what's the deal with the governor? Is this well, is I he mean, just playing that walking that line about uh, thinking about? You know, a lot of people are thinking about running for president. That there's no that there's no hiding that. Is this is he playing this game with people's lives because I, he's thinking I'm about a sure. run? Am I too tough I'm not on him? Sure what he, I'm not sure what he's thinking about, but I can tell you right now is that farm workers are not going to back down. And I can tell you right now that, you know, we're going to continue going forward. You know, we're not, we're used to it. You know, when we had a fight for overtime rights, it wasn't, it wasn't done on the first try. And when we had a fight for uh, heat protections for farm workers, it wasn't done on the first try. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to give up and we're going to continue coming uh, because the, the workers deserve nothing less, you know. And, and like you said, I mean, we have farm workers that are marching with us. Uh, they've been marching every day from Delano, and, including myself and including our, our president as well, uh, you know, with blisters, with uh, uh, extreme heat. But we're also very, very appreciative of all the, uh, the amazing community support, uh, you know, and I have to mention that because it's been incredible, the outpouring of support from the community, from farm workers as, as we're walking by when they're working and we're walking, we're marching by and they're yelling in support. And when uh, community members are coming out and bringing ice chests of water, Gatorade, and, we're, and or as we're walking by, you know, other stores uh, that, you know, whether it be Latino or some of our Arab brothers who, uh, in some of the many, some of the little markets uh, in the farm worker towns, they're coming out with water. And so we very much appreciate um, uh, all of the support that, the, that, that they've been showing. And that really gives us a lot of fuel to keep on going as we go on this 24-day uh, march. We're going to finish up and we're going to wind up in Sacramento on, on August 26th. Uh, we invite everybody to join us on August 26th at 10 a.m. at Southside Park. We're going to be gathering there uh, as you know, and, and help us walk in the help us walk in that final mile and to, into the capital. Let, let me take this uh, now right to you, sort of on a personal level. Tell us, um, it's not every job description that includes, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 mile <laughs> uh, walk a day uh, to um, in support of the people who you are working with. So how did you uh, decide that the United Farm Workers, that uh, this would be work for you? Well, I mean, I think we decided based uh, on the challenge we felt. And we said, and we decided that 
if we were going to be able to accomplish what we wanted to, then we had to put everything onto it. And it had to be, you know, this big. I mean, this this top march for us has only been t- done twice uh, ever before. Uh, and that was the original 1966 that Cesar uh, did from Veneno Sacramento to call attention to the Great Strike. And also in 1994, that Arturo Rodriguez uh, and the leadership at that time uh, did to recommit uh, after Cesar had passed away. Uh, and so, you know, we think, you know, we thought about how, what kind of work we needed to do and what we needed to do. And we said, okay, well, I think it's going to take this this type of action to to get the governor's attention and to sh- and to show him that we're serious. Yeah, and you personally, how did you come to be secretary treasurer? Did you start out? Was this your when you were in elementary school? I want to be the secretary treasurer. How did you <laughs> no. uh, come to uh, this you position? Know, um, uh, first of all, you know, I'm I'm blessed. I feel blessed uh, that I'm able to do this work and that I'm able to, you know, do this type of job. Uh, no, uh, just like anybody, I was I was going to school and uh, college, and I got involved in different uh, campus clubs and started getting active and and, and just uh, kind of, I guess you could say, stumbled into uh this life of activism and, and, and was lucky enough to uh to join the farm workers uh right out of college um uh, but you know i think for most of us just like any of our uh, any of our, any one of our team it's just the opportunity to 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 improve farm worker lives is what drives us and so on a personal level uh, you know my family's farm workers uh, you know and uh I, I worked in, in the fields for a little bit as well. Uh, so, but I never dreamed about that I was going to be doing this. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's just, did you know about the farm workers? Work. Did you know about the farm workers when you worked in the fields? Uh, no, I didn't. I actually, you know, and that's a, you know, again, that's a kind of a funny part. I, I didn't really learn anything. I didn't really know anything about the farm worker movement until, until, uh, I was in, I was in college and I started learning about it and then I started volunteering with them, you know, leafleting, passing, going to the stores, you know, recruiting other, other, other students to go leaflet with me back. Uh, I think it was back in the, uh, during the strawberry campaigns of the 90, of the nineties. Uh, and, and that's how I got involved. And then I started, I went to a couple conferences, uh, student conference, the UFW was hosting to kind of educate the students about, working conditions that's that's how i got involved and from there i got invited to uh, an internship and then became an organizer and uh, little by little uh just uh you know so i've been doing this for about 25 years now little by little well um uh, i want to say you're listening to flashpoints on pacifica radio we are speaking uh with the uh secretary treasurer of the united farm workers uh armando elenas and uh, they're on a 24-day trek from Delano to Sacramento. And and I'm going to bring Miguel Gavilan Molina into the seat. I know he has a question for you, but what exactly are you asking from the governor? 
what do you want him to do? What's at stake? What, what's, what's the thing he really needs to do? I mean, to be blunt, to sign AB 2183, that's the bill. Uh, that's the piece of legislation. It's, a, it's the same piece of legislation he vetoed last year. Uh, but uh, we feel strongly that we've, we, we've compromised enough. We've, we did enough to try to make it easier and make sure at the same time protect, uh, you know, give those workers the additional protection that they need. And so, you know, it's really simple. Sign the bill. Sign the bill. Well, uh, I'm Dennis Bernstein. Also joining us is Miguel Gabriela Molina. Miguel, welcome back. You've been doing, uh, you've been uh, wasting some shoe leather. I shouldn't say wasting, but you've been putting your foot uh, to the pavement and walking right along. How are you doing today? How was your day? Uh, you know, I, I got here a little late, but, uh, you know, at the rally, it was, uh, it was really uh, uh, powerful just to see, as Armando was mentioning, all the outpour of the community. I mean, people are bringing, you know, tubs of food, probably more food that, you know, uh, today it was necessary. But it, again, it's the outpouring. Uh, people coming in uh, from the Bay Area, San Jose, some people were coming in from Concord, and they're bringing water, and they're bringing fruit. You know, it's just a, uh, it's just an awakening. And it's, to me, Dennis, uh, I've been, you know, I've been you know, keeping track of this since 1966, uh, it's really like a resurrection, and, and it's like an empowering movement, this pilgrimage. And, and I wanted to ask uh, Armando, once, you know, the, the pilgrimage, those peregrinos end up in Sacramento, what happens, Armando, if the governor, you know, uh, doesn't sign it? You know, vetoes it like last time. What will be the action then? Because the thing is, you know, in November, we've got midterms elections, and he needs the Latino vote. He's not going to become governor without the Latino vote, or for that matter, you know, president as he's dreaming. But what happens, Armando, if he doesn't sign? What next? What's the next move for the union? Well, you know, we'll, we'll make the decision at that point, but uh, I, I can tell you this. We're not stopping. And, I mean, it might not be a march. It might be something else. But, uh, you know, we feel that strongly about it. Again, like I mentioned before, this is not the first time, you know, we do this dance, right? When we try to get overtime for farm workers, it took us several tries. When we tried to get heat protections for farm workers, you know, just fighting for basic water uh, and shade for workers, it took us, a, it took us a fight, right? So I think, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, you know we're not giving up. You know we'll do we'll do we'll do what's ne what's necessary to do to continue fighting. Exactly, as always, si se puede. You know we can and we will. We will do it. All right. Well, uh, again, uh, we thank you for joining us. Uh, of course, Miguel is going to be uh, with the team. We're going to be keeping an eye on this all the way through, uh, and. Uh, uh, again, thank you so much for spending the time with us, Armando, and for the really the courageous work you do for 
the United Farm Workers, and everybody should understand again that if it weren't for the United Farm Workers picking through fire and through uh, pandemics and whatever, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the food. Our tables would look uh, like they look, and it is a, a shame. Uh, that those who uh, make it possible uh, for us to have life can't even oftentimes afford the food they need to sustain themselves uh, to help us continue our lives. And again, it's the fire season, it's global warming, so all the issues, I think I'm not overstating the case, am I, Armando? All the issues that have traditionally faced the farm workers are now essentially intensified by global warming and uh, other conditions. It's, it, it, it's worse now. That's correct. That's correct. Hey, that's exactly right. And, and again, thank you so much for having me on the program. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we'll, you know, we're just going to keep on taking it day by day. And, you know, uh, tomorrow's going to be a nice long day of uh, heat and followed by another day of heat. But we're going to keep on, we're going to keep on marching. All right. Thank you both. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, We are going to take a short musical break, and then we're going to hear an interview Sara Blanco did. Uh, She spoke to president of the Rich Grove Water District about uh, the hospitality they're offering and uh, actually learned a lot about the the town's constant struggle for non-toxic drinking water. Here's Sarah. Again, this is Sarah Blanco speaking with president of the Rich Grove Water District about their hospitality. And uh, she learned a bunch about the town's struggle for non-toxic drinking water. Here is Sarah Blanco. Day two of... Day two of the... UFW and farm worker pilgrimage from Deleno to Sacramento, we arrived at the Rich Grove Water District. They were hosting uh, the marchers, welcomed them essentially when they arrived to Rich Grove from Deleno. And we are talking with the board president of the Rich Grove Water District. Good morning. My name is Rosanae Paniagua, and I am a child of immigrants to Rosa and Ruben Paniagua. And I am currently the water board president for the Rich Grove Community Services District. A week ago, actually, we got a call from a community member asking if they can, uh, if we can open up the space in our office to house, you know, farm workers that were doing this march. Um, and I know, you know, a little bit about what, what's going on with the UFW, and I, I was like, of course, you know, let me contact our, our board members which are all, 
you know, they understand the farm worker struggle and you know, the immigrant struggle. So, of course, you know, we opened our doors and really glad the Rich Grove Community Services District, you know, agreed. And, yeah, we were able to give some AC to people, waters, Gatorade aids. You know, the community members also in Rich Grove came through. They gave us some Gatorade aids. They supported with tacos. And, yeah, it was, you know, a little last minute, but it, we made it happen. And glad folks got to rest a little before they head on to their next uh, next stop. Well, what a, a beautiful thing that you did. I know that it was 94 degrees um, where we camped. Um, it's very hot, and that was at 3 in the morning. And so think about some of the basic things that farm workers are asking for these days as they have been for so long, and including, you know, water, shade, rest breaks, overtime. Um, this particular pilgrimage was more so about them going to ask for the governor's signature so that they farm workers have the right to choose union representation or not um, but in a way where they can um, do so without fear of intimidation and retaliation and not have to make that choice or vote on the premises of their boss tell us a little bit about how you became the board president and um, what is the rich grove water district yeah, so I joined the Rich Grove Water Board District about a little under two years ago. I grew up in Rich Grove, very small farm working town. My parents are immigrants from Mexico. And yeah, they arrived here. I was born and raised here. Um, you know, Rich Grove is a small, unincorporated town. So I, I saw a lot of, you know, disparities in my community and just wanted to get involved and see what I can do. And, you know, since we're in an unincorporated town, we don't have a mayor, city council. So, and this water board um, is one of the only boards where I can have a, a voice, uh, you know, to change certain things. And yeah, the Rich Grove Community Service District has a water board, which you know decides decides on water rates, or you know, we deal with little emergency mishaps when. Uh, you know, our water gets contaminated by certain pesticides and um, a few other things that we do. You know, we, we got a park a few years ago and we also help maintain it with the community. Uh, you know, we try to gather volunteers. So I'm blown away mainly by the fact that you said that the water board had kind of like created itself, trying to um, help um, create the rates, but also... Um, sound the alarm, if you will, about the safety of the water and that there it's an unincorporated town, no mayor, etc. Please tell us about the water here in Rich Grove and the population in general. Yeah, so um, quick, you know, context, um, unincorporated towns in, in most counties in California, they they have some type of board to give a service, right? And and we have one board to give uh, water services to the community. So, you know, this community is majorly farm workers, immigrants. We have, um, you know, Mexicans, Latinos, Filipino folks here. Um, that's pretty much as diverse as it gets here um you know folks it's a really small town so a lot of people know each other i grew up here um and yeah we we face a few a few you know environmental issues uh, our water specifically you know is often contaminated um we have 
um, oranges to our left. Uh, you know, we have grapes to our right. We have now pistachios uh, coming, you know, really close by and all those, you know, forms of, of crops. Uh, of course, agriculture at this moment uses maybe harmful pesticides that get into our water, into our soil. And, you know, we use groundwater to um, you, you fill up our wells and sometimes they get contaminated because of how close we are. And, um, you know, sometimes we have to give emergency notices. Uh, you know, don't use your water today. Nitrates are really high. Folks have to rely. I don't know if you can see there. Um, there's like jugs of water. So actually, the the county and a nonprofit uh, got together and they collaborated on a grant. And now the community of Rich Grove has access to to clean water with five gallons every two weeks, uh, which is really amazing. But yeah, the water board, we keep water flowing to the community and, you know, any community comment that they have or any public issue that comes up, we, we try to do our best. Imagine that, you know, we're in a drought and I know we're all worried in some way about water, but we've got basically endless amounts of water coming out of our spouts. Um, but imagine that being called up and, and told, um, you really, really, please don't, you really don't want to use the water today because of high nitrates. Can you tell us about nitrates in the water? Yeah, uh, I know nitrates is one of the chemicals, one of the uh, substances in our water. Uh, we also have a few of the, a few other um, chemicals sometimes, and all these chemicals, you know, are linked to cancer rates. And you know, unfortunately, like uh, my mom actually got cancer. She was a farm worker, and alongside her, there's so many other people with similar stories um, in Rich Grove or other unincorporated towns, um, you know, farm working towns that unfortunately have to face, uh, you know, the consequences of what ag uses, you know, the tactics um, to to make big ag, you know, work and function to, to feed the world, um, which, you know, we're really hopeful that someday uh, that that changes and, you know, more sustainable solutions are brought forward to, to care for our farm workers because they, you know, they feed the world and they need um, access to one, healthcare, which many don't have, access to a safe environment, access to clean water. And at the moment, we, we don't have that in, in Central California, which is a little ridiculous because our, our state has so much money, but we, we know that that's how things are going. Um, but, you know, we're still here trying to advocate for, for our communities, for ourselves, um, and, you know, just better, better livelihoods, healthier communities. What are some of the immediate steps that you believe will help bring safe, clean drinking water to Rich Grove? And then also the sky's the limit. What needs to be done here? Yeah, I would say step one, um, the state needs to take action in um, creating more of a network to reach out to these communities when an emergency does happen. You know, we are a community of, of survivors and we're, we're used to supporting one another and not necessarily rely um, on, on the state sometimes, you know, because in we're pretty much in the middle of nowhere in a small incorporated town, you know, and um, access to certain resources are, are never there. And I would say that network and connection of, of 
reliable sources and resources that can support us, you know, that would be great. As of now, the only network I see is, like, the network that the people have created. You know, I currently am working on, like, connecting with other uh, small incorporated towns so we can support one another, you know, troubleshoot issues that we all face um, because I know, you know, we're not going anywhere. Farm workers are, are going to migrate to these small communities that are, you know, one, a little, a little cheaper to live in, um, a little because uh, it's not too different. But also I would say um, just the state needs to support with infrastructure and helping these communities know how to survive out here. A lot of people here that migrate here are immigrants and, you know, they don't necessarily feel like they belong. And if, you know, I would say other uh, community um, members or other nearby cities can support also, you know, in making them feel welcome and started, you know, with certain events or activities or trainings. Even I know there's a nonprofit in Tulare County that uh, sometimes, you know, offers trainings, but, you know, currently right now everything is uh, online and a lot of people here, they don't have money to pay for reliable Wi-Fi. And, you know, I, I'm always an advocate for, for free public services. And, you know, that's one thing that would do amazing, um, you know, have a an amazing aftermath if that were to happen um, or if you know folks in the county want to expand other public services that that might help our communities that are you know always one making very low wages because farm workers are are not uh, they're not getting what they deserve you know they have to be working uh, backbreaking labor and sometimes they face a lot of um, you know injustices ar- around the labor that they do um, you know harmful conditions um, so I would just say so many things could change um, as of now just more more resources and more support for these communities to know how to um, you know sustain themselves for for the long run because um, you know we're currently in a drought and things things aren't seeming uh, to get better um and i think with the connection and infrastructure that focuses on all the issues that are going on we might you know find find a soon a quick solution or a a solution that's sustainable for all of us and let's be real there are plenty of places who feel they have safe water um when we get these letters in the mail that says you have x amount of toxins in there but it's okay and then you don't ever really know we, we have no real way of knowing until you get those aaron brockoviches out there um and uh, an injury to one is an injury to us all do you have any researchers coming out here i know the human aspect is the most important i'm so sorry to hear about your mother with cancer um and the other people with cancer is there any scientific studies being done, any research? I mean, it's all the same across the entire land. There's going to be a fight of, like, it was the pesticides, no, it wasn't, in circles. Or anybody come out here and, and talk to you all? Uh, personally, no, I have not heard of anyone, you know, taking an interest in finding a cancer cluster here, you know. But I would say, just like you said, it's kind of the norm in the in Central California or in rural areas where immigrants live. Um, but yeah, as of now, it's, you know, just word of mouth, folks. Oh, this new person got cancer. This other person got cancer. And our cancer center, you know, is 45 minutes away uh, to an hour. So, you know, one, you know, going back to the question, what can be done? It's, again, expanding the network and infrastructure. And, you know, folks that do have cancer here, uh, it would be amazing if, you know, the county would provide transportation 
transportation, for example, instead of having them look for it when they're going through their chemo. Um, so, I mean, I would love some researchers out here, um, especially if they have uh, the connections to, to get the word out. Um, but I would say it's known that our community is the way it is, but I, I would say till, till the people um, feel empowered to, to take their their experiences um, either to the capital or even to their local government, you know, county. County doesn't doesn't do much for us, unfortunately. We, we're at the end of the county and we, of course, get, get the least resources. And again, unincorporated towns get the least resources because we don't have, uh, you know, taxes to rely on from our com- property taxes to rely on that, um, you know, give us enough funding to, to have extra resources for our community, you know, for basic needs. Um, but yeah, I would say hopefully I, I can make a connection with some with some folks that can get the word out and spread the word out. Uh, you know, always always staying hopeful for that. Thank you so much for speaking with us today on Flashpoints, president of the Rich Grove Water District. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for hearing us out and for joining the farm workers on their struggle to get that signature. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. In one moment, we're going to turn our attention to the extraordinarily serious situation in terms of Ukraine and the reactor. We don't really know what's going on, but there are so many possibilities of a, for a nuclear trigger that it is terrifying. But I have to uh, just give you this bit of news, and this one I'm going to. Uh, Actually, the New York Times is going to be mentioned twice on the show today. Here's the first time. Uh, Former President Donald J. Trump said on Monday that the FBI had searched his Palm Beach, Florida home and had broken open a safe, an account that, if accurate, would be a dramatic escalation in the various investigations into the former president. The search, according to two people familiar with the investigation, appeared to be focused on material that Mr. Trump had brought with him to Mar-a-Lago, his private club and residence, after he left the White House. Those boxes contained many pages of classified documents, according to a person familiar with their contents. Well, I guess there's more to come on that. Uh, Anyway, if we still have a world, uh, given the nuclear dangers we're facing uh, in Ukraine and Russia, uh, then um, this is really interesting. Uh, Welcoming to the airwaves to talk about the nukes and uh, 
the battle for election honesty and uh, the ability to protect the vote is Harvey Wasserman. He's a longtime voting activist and a longtime anti-nuclear activist and a longtime supporter in big ways of solar energy. So, Harv, welcome back to Flashpoints. Uh, Dennis, it's great to be with you, although I wish we had happier stuff to talk about. I indeed do. And let's also welcome Linda Pence-Gunter. She's the editor and curator of Beyond uh, Nuclear International and the International Specialist. Well, uh, Linda, let's start. This is an international story. Uh, We don't really know what's going on. We know there's a heavy propaganda machine happening out of the West. And we know that uh, the Russians are at war in Ukraine and they've been risking actions around nuclear plants since the beginning of their invasion. Uh, How... You know, that nuclear clock is running out of room, so let's forget the clock now. How dangerous is this situation? Well, I think, Dennis, you know, it's time that might be running out of luck, as as you say, because you can't rely on luck forever, and clearly that's the situation right now in Ukraine. What we, As you said, it's very hard to decipher, given the amount of propaganda that's coming out, both from the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, each eager, obviously, uh, to paint the other as the villain as to what actually is happening at the sixth reactor site in Zaporizhia, which is the nearest one to the most intense fighting in the southeastern and the eastern region of Ukraine. But what it does sound like, it does seem that because the Russians have occupied the Zaporizhia site since the beginning of March, that they are using it as a kind of military base, as it were. So it does sound like they're staging out of there. But these stories about the attacks on the plant itself, it's very difficult to make head or tail of it because it doesn't make sense for the Russians to shell it because they've got their own forces in there. It doesn't make sense for Ukrainians to shell it because that's their country that's that's toast if one of those reactors is breached. So um, unraveling the truth is a real challenge. And it's it's sort of a bit of a mythical story that the the Russians, uh, you know, they they've put mines. Uh, this is one of the stories around the plant. So if you cross the mine, you blow up the plant. And that seems sort of suicidal. I'm not sure we have suicide squads in from Russia. So, but we 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 cannot tell. We do know. Harvey Wasserman, this is a freaking dangerous situation. Your thoughts? I think we have a a homicidal madman who doesn't care if these six reactors blow up. And I would have to say advisory that this is perhaps the most dangerous situation that the human race has confronted uh, since Fukushima started to blow up. Uh, These six reactors could absolutely carpet Europe with atomic radiation. I think the most plausible explanation is that uh, Putin is using them basically as hostages and that uh, they're, they're using our, our artillery that's positioned around these reactors to shell their targets in Ukraine in the knowledge that the Ukrainians really can't shoot back because if they cause a disaster at one of these reactors, uh, the radioactive cloud will completely carpet Ukraine. Uh, Belarus and much of Europe. 
You mean, let me just, just to be clear, Hov, so you mean to say that you think Putin is willing, because, I mean, you you can't carpet Ukraine and not Russia, so you're saying that uh, your your thought is that uh, Putin is willing to give the whole thing up, go underground, and risk uh, nuclear conflagration right in Russia, because it's not going to draw the line in Ukraine, right? Yes, but you're presuming sanity. And uh, nothing oh, that okay. I've seen indicating with someone who's staying here. And uh, this right. is what we've been... Well, it wasn't... It, just, to, just to argue the point a little bit more, forgive me, Harv. The, the U.S. just sent another billion dollars in weapons and uh, stuff to Ukraine. Another billion after another. What, 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 what do you think is happening here? You think the Ukrainians aren't capable of disinformation? I, I'm just saying we don't exactly know what's going on. But we, we're close. We do know that there is uh, armed conflict going around uh, yes. very, very close to the uh, site of six atomic reactors three of which apparently are still operating, but it doesn't matter because there's enough nuclear waste there to carpet Europe, to go into the uh, uh, um, airstream, uh, and uh, to do global damage to the human race. I would have to say that at this point in time, the entire human race is in dire danger because of a technology that should never have been built and we just passed a major bill through the Congress that lays out $30 billion, or more or less, as best we can tell, in the subsidies to keep this uh, uh, technology going. Imagine if something like this was going on at the Diablo Canyon reactors in, in California. We would be looking at a ra- the possibility of a radioactive cloud going into L.A. County with 10 million people, into the Central Valley with the country's winter vegetables as supply, or even into the Bay Area if the wind shifted. That's what we have. That's what this devil's bargain is with nuclear power. We have 92 reactors in the United States, and something similar could be going on at any one of them at this time. It is absolutely terrifying. Uh, You want to just jump in there, Linda? What do you think about what Harv just said and uh, sort of the level of danger that we all face? What are your thoughts? I think, you know, we put out a press release on this today, and when we posted it to our website, you know, I think there were two points, or to Facebook as well, there were two points that sort of struck me about this. One is that obviously nuclear reactors should not be in a war zone. Number two, since we live in a world that is getting ever more volatile and ever more tense, partly due to the stresses of the climate crisis, we have no idea where wars are likely to break out or not. I mean, this war in itself, in some ways, was a big shock. So therefore, there should be no nuclear reactors anywhere, because any nuclear reactor anywhere in, in a situation of conflict is, as Harvey said, you know, it's a pre-deployed nuclear bomb effectively that could if it released even one even one of those reactors was completely breached and released all its radioactivity that would dwarf what happened at chernobyl in 1986 there are six re- uh, reactors there almost all of them close to 1000 megawatts each with huge radioactive industries not only in the reactors but also in the fuel pools so it's a really really perilous situation so it just brings home as harvey says the insanity 
you know, of having these reactors at all, let alone in the middle of the conflict. You know, as to what Putin may or may not think, I mean, who knows, who knows? But what I struggle with is this sort of back and forth about <clears throat> what certain news outfits are saying. In my view right now, there isn't a news outfit coming out of Russia that is a verifiable, trusted source because Putin is either imprisoned, banned, or murdered the independent press in Russia. So we're not hearing anything that isn't completely in the pocket of the Russian government coming out of there. Ukraine's interested in painting the Russians as evil as possible. So there's a lot of hyperbolic rhetoric coming out of Ukraine as well. And it's very difficult, you know, even when you read stories tonight, about what's going on from outfits like NBC. They say they have not verified the claims of either side. I mean, you cannot apply the journalistic gold standard to any of this by getting a second source on anything. And especially since the first source is likely, you know, not credible <laughs> if it's coming from either one, if it's coming from Energo Atom out of Ukraine or if it's coming from TASS or Pravda or whatever out of Russia, you have no idea if it's propaganda or, or news. So unless you've got somebody on the ground there seeing it with their own eyes who's an independent journalist, it's very, very hard to know what goes on. But yeah, the, the danger is extreme. There's no question about that. Right. And what, and what we do know, Dennis, is we have six atomic reactors, as Linda has said, and Linda is quite brilliant on this. And we have two of them right here in California. Now, they're not uh, technically in a war zone, but they are surrounded by earthquake faults for God's sake, and they are embrittled, and they are 39, they are, you know, pushing 40 years old. And we have a governor now, and there's a hearing on Friday online, people should look, they want to extend the life of these two atomic reactors that are surrounded by earthquake faults. I mean, in the long run, what's the difference between a war zone and a zone where you have 12 known earthquake faults, plus the San Andreas, which is only 45 miles away, two gargantuan reactors that could send apocalyptic radioactive clouds all over the country. And the, and the state of California is now talking about extending the life of these reactors when we have more than enough renewable energy to, to supply the state. Uh, you know, in the long run, what's the difference here between Putin and Newsom? Why are you even thinking of keeping these reactors uh, in operation. It's insane. Did you say what's the difference between Putin and Newsom? Did you say that, Harvey? If Gavin Newsom is seriously considering extending the life of two atomic reactors that are almost 40 years old, that are surrounded by earthquake faults, that are crumbling, and, and they're run by a, a, a utility company, PE that has been bankrupted twice, that has been twice convicted of multiple manslaughters involving the death of more than 100 people and the leveling of the forest in Northern California and the blowing up of a, of a neighborhood in San Bruno. And he's thinking of allowing this company to continue to operate two atomic reactors. Is that sane? I don't know, Linda. Is the, do you would you think that's saying he is the governor of California and he is thinking about running for president? Well, there seem to be an awful lot of things that are happening that signal to me the decline and fall of human intelligence. I mean, you, know, you just look at all the things that are going on. I mean, first of all, why are we 
fighting over bits of land. I mean, that to me, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, China saber rattling about Taiwan, who cares? I mean, we have a planet that we're going to lose, that we're about to lose. That is where we live. Whether you own this bit of land or that bit of land or I occupy you is irrelevant at this point. We've either got to save ourselves or we're cooked. And so I find it, you know, personally exasperating that these men in charge of these countries want to, you know, have fight wars and threaten wars and become so bellicose and, you know, wake up and smell the climate change, folks. I mean, that is the existential threat that we face, as well as, of course, the possibility of nuclear weapons being used. But that would be a very quick end to our situation. But the fact that we're not all coming together and focusing on the one job at hand, which is to keep this planet habitable for the foreseeable future, instead of which we've got to fight stupid wars over bits of, of territory, it's primitive behavior, isn't it? So it really makes me think we're sort of on the downslope. You know, this is the decline and fall of the, the human empire, if you like. And I hate to be so cynical and pessimistic, but it is really hard, you know, and you look at the other things that are going on in this country, you know, it makes you just sort of almost despair. I mean, the primitive behavior that we're seeing in so many sort of social areas, you know, trying to deprive LGBT kids of free school lunches, you know, banning abortion. I mean, all these things that are going on, it's regression, isn't it? Well, and, and it, it is. Add, and go on, Herf. go on. Dennis, when you add the nuclear power dimension, we have 90 two operating reactors in this country, any one of which c could be falling apart at any time. There's no more nuclear power issue. The issue is the 400 reactors worldwide, the 92 in the United States, any one of which could be blowing up as we speak. And here you have six of them surrounded in a war zone with a absolute crazy people doing things that make no sense whatsoever. It's impossible as Linda has pointed out, to overstate the danger of what's happening at Zaborajia right now. Six atomic reactors, any one of which could be hit by an errant missile and cause far worse damage than Chernobyl, accompanied by the two here at Diablo Canyon. They're surrounded by earthquake faults. How in God's name could anyone consider allowing these reactors to continue to operate? She's right. You have to question the intelligence of our species and its and its will to survive. Well, <clears throat> it is. You have a point there, uh, uh, Linda, in terms of um, who, who's been in charge and who's made the decisions that have uh, gotten us to where we are. Of course, you know, um, two days ago was August sixth, and you know, tomorrow is August 9th. and it is. Uh, the United States of America, uh, the only the only country that it not only did it atomic bomb civilian populations, but it used uh, others and its own citizens to test these weapons. So <clears throat> when we think about insanity and Putin and all that, we know uh, that there's enough insanity to go around. And again, you've got a, a liberal uh, progressive 
governor here in California who thinks that uh, <clears throat> trusting an untrustworthy uh, nuclear plant with corporations that have proven to be untrustworthy is just fine. So uh, I'm not sure where to go with this, Harv. Uh, but, you know, there's going to be a lot of well, Democrats. Go I can hear them. I can hear them. I, I just want to say I can hear them saying, shut your freaking mouth. You want another Trump? Shut up. Get in line. The Democrats are fine. They just passed that bill. You know, God, uh, get lost, you Bernie lover. Well, we have renewable energy. We have solar. We have wind. We have the means to more than uh, produce enough energy to keep our civilization, if you can call it that, uh, uh, going. We, the last thing we need, and this is proof of it, is a, a nuclear power plant anywhere on this planet, especially at the Abel Canyon, for God's sake. Those two reactors have got to shut as soon as possible. We have 70,000 people in California working in wind and solar. Let's, let's make that happen and let's shut those reactors as soon as possible. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're out of time now, but I have to say it's an incredibly important subject, and I really uh, do appreciate you, Harvey Wasserman, uh, and you, Linda Penskunter, and uh, the work that happens at Beyond Nuclear, a great source uh, for information about this. And, Harvey, back to you, an incredible uh, election protection uh, seminar today, the, the seminars, uh, the election protection uh, gatherings that we have now you have uh every monday uh at two o'clock west coast five o'clock east coast incredibly important how do people be a part of that very quickly please write me directly solartopia at gmail write me at solartopia gmail i'll send you a free pdf of my history of the u.s and uh, join us dennis it's always an honor to have you on Okay. Thank you, Harvey. Thank you, Linda. Both of you, please stay safe. My name is Dennis Bernstein. I have a minute, and I just want to say the reason I'm a little suspicious of the news, anybody remember what happened that got us into the Gulf War, where the Kuwaiti ambassador came and testified before Congress how the Iraqis had broken into the uh, baby, the hospital, uh, and with the babies on incubators and ripped them all off the incubators? Remember that? And that was one of the key things that got us into that Gulf War. Remember, it didn't happen. Of course, there's the Gulf of Tompkin. And remember, the main and on we go. So we must be suspicious. Uh, Putin is not my hero. Uh, but the United States government and the U.S. military establishment, uh, those who uh, used initially developed and used atomic weaponry, they're capable of doing it as well. So, you know, 1945, a couple of they, I guess it was the uh, the. Uh, silk stockings, the ballpoint pen, and the United States gave us the atomic bomb. I'm Dennis Bernstein, and we are out of time. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. 
For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.